first, a word from our partners. Starting a coffee business, the new coffee shop welcome box by Fresh Cup Magazine is their way of making the process a little more fun. Inside, you'll receive the how-to handbook, product samples, and other goodies. There's no cost and no catch. Get yours at freshcup.com welcome. Maxwell Dashwood's new book, The Business of Specialty Coffee, is about bringing a coffee vision to life built on a business model that allows that vision to flourish. Secure your spot on the book launch waitlist at maxwelldashwood.com. You're listening to The Coffee Podcast. I'm Jesse Hartman. The story of metric coffee is compelling, inspirational, and challenges the status quo of the modern coffee company as they are guided by quality, radical transparency, and the transformative power of a fair price to producers. That's from their website. If you have had a cup of coffee from Metric, you have tasted Metric's rich decade-old story, but the sensory experience does not reveal the full value behind the cup. In this conversation, we sit down with Xavier Alexander and learn what it cost him and his loved ones to pursue their coffee dream. Xavier Alexander is co-founder of Chicago's Metric Coffee, also certified B Corp. All right, Xavier, welcome to the Coffee Podcast. Thank you for having me. Yeah, we have kind of a tragedy story, don't we, with this? <laughs> yeah, we do, but I'm glad we're doing it again, yeah. <laughs> Just so the listeners can know, I met with Xavier in Chicago, and we recorded a wonderful interview that had a terrible ending. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it disappeared into the oblivion, but... I will say, Xavier, you and your team just had amazing hospitality the whole time I was there. And so, you know, it's a thing that you can't really experience through the podcast anyway, but I highly encourage anybody in Chicago at any point, head on over to Metric and enjoy that hospitality for yourself. But moving on from there, before we talk about sort of the larger topics, I want to hear your story, how it relates to coffee. Where did it start? What was your first experience with coffee? Oh boy, do we have, we only have an hour, right? That's, (laughs) I was born here in Chicago, raised in Puerto Rico. So I was there until I was eight years old, moved to Florida. So I consider Florida home. And that's where I spent, I I would say majority of my life was spent in Florida. In Orlando, right? In Orlando. Yeah, exactly. So then I'd I'd spent time there. A big Disney World fan. Oh yeah. Okay. (laughs) So my mom used to work there. And so like, you know, we grew up extremely poor. No thanks in part to Disney, but mm. but the one benefit was that we did get tickets. So we would go when we were young. And then after, you know, several years ago and you sort of like, okay, we've done it all. So it's kind of boring. But yeah, I was there until I was in my late twenties and then I had moved to Chicago. But during my time there, I was playing in bands. I was sort of trying to figure out who do I want to be in this world? I'd gone to college, dropped out, started again, dropped out, was really not understanding where I wanted to go in life. Up until I found an opportunity working for a local roaster. And that's where I got my start in coffee back in 2001, I believe, 2000. So it's been a minute. And there was a roaster in the coffee shop where I used to work at. And so at one point, I remember during the shift, we were running out of coffee. And I learned, I just basically like saw green coffee sitting in a burlap bag. And I just scooped some up and I fired up the machine and started roasting the coffee. And I really enjoyed the process, even though I had no idea what I was doing. But, you know, I I still really connected with the machine. I connected with sort of the alchemy and the science and the physical aspect of turning something from raw to roasted and then enjoy it. 
So an opportunity came about because of that sort of desire and that curiosity that hit me once I started getting into coffee. Mm. And then I just did that for a couple of years up until mid 2000s. And then I had left that company and it wasn't up until I came to Chicago, which I was just here to visit a friend. And I was actually born here in Chicago, but never really spent time here. So once I did spend some time here in my late 20s, I just really fell in love with the city, fell in love with how hospitable people were because, you know, coming back from Florida, it is a melting pot, but people I feel like weren't as nice. So they weren't as open Mm. and come to find out once I moved here, I think the reason why is because I was meeting a lot of people who weren't from Chicago. They were from Michigan or Minnesota. And they're just freaking nice people. They'll say hello to you. Like, hey, you want to come over to my house? We're having a potluck. Come on over. And it's like, Hmm. I just met you. (laughs) And I really enjoyed that. And I'm an introvert, so that felt weird. But I really enjoyed being able to meet people and be able to feel welcomed in the Midwest. So I definitely fell in love with it, stayed. And it wasn't up until 2010 that I got a job at Intelligentsia. So I got back into coffee and started roasting. I was doing roasting and quality control management for Intelligentsia. And I would say that working for Intelligentsia really opened my eyes to the bigger world of specialty coffee and coffee that is not only just well-roasted, but also the sourcing program is really intentional. Witnessing Jeff Watts, who is my boss and is still a dear friend in the lab and seeing how he makes his buying decisions and how Hmm. these relationships are basically manifested was really inspirational to me. So I really appreciated that time at Intelligentsia. And I did that for a couple of years. And then that curiosity started to well up again with what can I do with this information? How can I apply my own DNA, my own voice to coffee? And then when I met Darko, Arangelovic, who's my business partner and a dear friend, I would say, you know, he inspired the vision to join together and launch Metric, which we did that in 2013. And as of this year, now we've completed our 10th year in business independently. And for us, independently means that we didn't borrow money from any banks or any outside investors. We just bought an old dusty probot a couple of bags of coffee and it was just being super scrappy and just really having very little resources to do the cool stuff we wanted to do, which then forced us to be more creative and more intentional. Hmm. You know, and today we're still thriving. We're still cooking. We're still doing what we love. And boy, I I left a lot of stuff out in between, but that's how I guess (laughs) I would say that that's sort of the meat and potatoes of the last 20 years in and out of coffee. So, yeah. Yeah. And the idea of the scrappy mindset, I feel like is core to Metric's story. And we'll come back to that in a second. But I think that the ProBot story, it's too good to not at least tell in part. Oh boy. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So can you tell the story of just the brokenness level of jumping into starting your own coffee company and what that was like, just so our listeners can get a feel of that? Awesome. Yeah. So as the story goes, we knew we wanted to launch a company. We just had no money to buy Roaster, but I did find a listing for an ad in Germany. So this German coffee roaster reseller was selling an L12 and I just happened to email them. I asked them, do you happen to have a UG 15 or 22? And could you tell me if so, what is the price? And they just happened to have a 15 kilo available. And the price 
to us seemed like a really great price, considering that at the time, it seems like, you know, the ProBots, the antique UG models were really sought after. And so when you find them stateside, they were going upwards to forty to $50,000 for something beat up. That's what you're going to pay. If you wanted refurbished and bells and whistles, you're going to be paying seventy to 80000 So wow. the price we landed for our machine was around 25000 USD, which we thought it's like, wow, this is a great price. We have to get this machine. The only problem is that Darko launched Cafe Streets, which was his own separate business cafe. And he was really tied on money, so he didn't have any money to put into any equipment, and neither did I. But at the time, what we did was we just sort of ran up our credit cards. We sold whatever we could. I had a 401k through Intelligentsia, so I closed that out. They were asking me why, and I'm like, don't worry about it. I just need the money. And it wasn't (laughs) a lot, but it was whatever I could just squeeze out of the orange, if you will, out of the apple, you know, like whatever juice we could squeeze, we did. And then I did something that I would never ever recommend to anyone do, which was I took out a student loan and I took out a separate loan from that student loan for living expenses, which I then put as a down payment for the roaster. So kids, listen to me, don't ever do that. That was dumb. I could have been in so much trouble, but that's how I was able to get my half of the deposit for the machine. And then once we had the cash in hand, we wired it to Germany and we straight up did like the guy ghosted. He was not responsive. We basically thought, okay, we just got robbed. We are not getting the machine. Mm -hmm. This money's gone. And I have this huge student loan hanging over my head. It was an awful thing to go through on top of being, you know, what I would consider to be the working poor. My wife and I don't come from money. We had a small child at the time. And this was also really traumatic for us. And I would say a lot for her because I made, unfortunately, decisions that were impacting our lives. And I really regret having to do that and put her through that. And it's something I'm still apologizing for till today. But thankfully, you know, while it was really challenging, after seven months of waiting, we finally got our crate. We open it. The machine is in the box. However, The machine was not refurbished. It was completely rusted. Basically, they just like spray painted the outside of it. And that was it. That machine had to have been sitting somewhere exposed to water, exposed to the elements, and it was not taken care of. So we had two choices. Either we fix it or we sell it. And, you know, with our tenacity and our curiosity and our our ability to just like be handy, we decided to fix it. And we learned how to refurbish roasters. You know, we learned how to refurbish a probot and we did that in 2012 and then officially in 2013 moved to our current location and we started roasting coffee. Hmm. Literally in the first six months of roasting coffee, we submitted two coffees to Good Food Awards and we won, Amazing. which I was completely like, what the heck? Like, and I, <laughs> I yeah, I was like besides myself because I thought like, oh, we're not going to get any sort of recognition or it's, we're not going to win anything. And yeah, that was a really big boost for us in the beginning. And we still have the machine today. So that's the story of our robot, which is still cooking really good coffee. We're still really happy to have it. It was really traumatic, I would say, because we 
had learned many years later that the man who we bought the machine from has done exactly what he did to us, to other companies. Hmm. In fact, we actually met somebody from Probat who told us that he had conned people out of money and never delivered on the equipment. So oh, we were actually really lucky to get our Probat, but unfortunately it was not what we ordered. We ordered a fully refurbished Probat UG and we got a rust bucket, but she's our rust bucket. And we love it and we're happy to have it. Does your rust bucket have a name or no name? Well, so a Darko called, so we ended up flat black because it was just to cover all the blemishes and all this stuff. And we just called her Black Beauty and that was, uh, or Black Diamond actually, sorry. No, I say Black Beauty, he says Black <laughs> Diamond. We'll split in the middle, you know, she has multiple <laughs> names, but I love that machine because of the story. There are better roasters out there per se, some would say technically speaking, but we really love our machine and we don't see ourselves letting her go anytime soon. So, yeah. So here's a question for you. If money was no object, would you still have fixed the machine? Let's pretend for a moment that you ordered the thing when you had no money, right? Mm -hmm. And you go through all this trouble, but all of a sudden you come into all this money. Would you still have fixed it? Yes. Because, you know, one thing that I've learned about owning a small business is that it's really crucial for anyone involved within that business to know the ins and outs of the equipment you're using, whether it's espresso equipment, whether it's just, you know, a FECO or even a roaster, because outsourcing a lot of the technical stuff to other companies can be extremely expensive. Some techs will charge, you know, 150 to $300 an hour plus travel fees, plus, plus, plus. And if you're a small business and you have to be scrappy and you don't have money, but I would say that to answer your question, even if I did have money or we had money rather, I think it's just a good thing for us to know. It's a good thing for us to know how to not just operate our equipment, but to know how to fix and troubleshoot mm. in areas. Because for me, it feels good to just know how to take something apart and put it back together and make it work. And also save a thousand dollars that like that feels like the way to go. And that's how we would do it. And then we didn't really talk about the name of metric either. So I was taking a bike ride and I was thinking about architecture and geometry. And then geometry went into geometric. And then I started thinking about metric because our machine and the way we weigh coffee. So all of our bags are in kilos, the roasters in kilos. So that was just a natural name for us. It was just like, yeah, we use the metric system in coffee. And, you know, when I told Darko and he's from Serbia and they use the metric system, he's like, I love it because that's how I use, you know, like, especially talking to him as an example, <laughs> he'll mention the weather in Celsius. He was like, oh, it's 50 degrees today. And I'm like, no, it's not, dude. It's 90. What are you talking about? And he's like, no, Celsius. I'm like, oh, yeah, right. Okay. And that's how it is for a lot of friends I have. Yeah. You know, when I travel outside of the continental US, people just are using the metric system and they say things in Celsius. So that's why we're metric. So you mentioned the Good Food Award that you got. Was that one of the major turning points for metric? It, well, you know, it boosted us. So it sort of made us feel like we're on the right track, right? So like we felt like, wow, this is a really great thing to not only connect with people, but we feel recognized XYZ. But can I tell you that it helped boost our sales? Did we start to see more relationships come from that? No, we didn't. That I feel for us has come many, many years later. But what felt like a turning point for us was when I bought our first direct trade coffee from Benjamin Paz back in 2015. That for me was just transformative because I had gone with the intention of buying 
about five to 10 bags of coffee and I ended up buying four bags. So I took an origin trip to only buy four bags of coffee. But for me, what was amazing is that now, you know, seven, eight years later of buying directly from these relationships, we're buying full containers of coffee. So we started at four and now we're going into 275 to 300 bags of coffee. So that is for me, like, wow. yeah, that four bags is still in my head. I'm still thinking about those four first bags of coffee that we put on the menu from a producer we started working with. who We unfortunately are no longer working with because they decided to sell the farm and get out of farming for different reasons. But that was for me, the turning moment where it's like, wow, this is really special. And I really appreciate this. And I also appreciated Benjamin letting me know that it's like, you could buy a bag or 500 bags. I don't care. I just want to work with you. I really like you and I want to work with you. And that made me feel seen and made me feel like this is not about volume. This is about relationships. And I would say there's many, but that was one I can recognize at the moment. Okay. So a turning point for you there was kind of this engagement in a relationship business. You had an experience with a human that made you feel like a human in the business of coffee. And that kind of was a turning point for you. And I know relationship coffee is a topic we're going to discuss here on the next episode. But for now, let me take a step back and ask you some questions about what was it like starting Scrappy? You have your four bags of coffee that you just bought. What was the community engagement like with Metric early on? And how much did you lean on the community? What did all of that look like? Yeah, it's a great question. You know, thinking back to 2013, when we first launched, we're still as passionate and as in love with what we do today as we did back then. But there was a certain curiosity and just like a certain, I hate to say stupidity, but we were just like kind of like stupidly, like we, we try anything. We were just like, let's just try anything. Let's just not be bound by what people think we should be like. Let's just really explore who we want to be and what we want to say. And that was refreshing. But also early on, it was really scary. I have three boys and my wife, Kirsten and I, but at the time we only had one child. So we had no health insurance. I probably, no lie, probably brought home about $800 a month. Mm. Our rent is $750. So that tells you anything. It's like we were just really in a tough spot. But Mm. I really believed, I mean, Darko and I, and our families, we believed in this vision and this dream of ours. But early on, there was no outside support. So there was no financial support. And we weren't getting a flood of business because we, both Darko and I, had to be the delivery person. We had to roast. We had to grind. We had to pack. We had to ship. We had to take the phone calls. We had to take the complaints. We were just a one-stop shop between the two of us. And that was extremely challenging on top of feeling the burden of how are we going to pay our cell phone bill next month? How are we going to feed our kid? How are we going to go to the doctor? And that journey is traumatic and special to us because that's what made Metric Metric. It's that mentality of, I would say that prior to Metric and before I had gotten married to Kirsten and had met Darko, I would have been the kind of person that if I didn't have those two in my life and those people, I would have just been like, well, it'll never happen because nobody gave me anything. That would be my approach. Hmm. But then after meeting really driven people that are just so inspirational and I could not be where I'm at today without those individuals in my life, I wouldn't have the fortitude to be able to achieve the things we've achieved with so little, which has forced us to be extremely scrappy. And I am incredibly 
grateful today because my perspective and worldview and also the way we operate business is because of how we launched Metric, which was very little resources. Sometimes we could barely make ends meet, but I feel like a lot of the stories I hear about new brands or new companies coming about are really, and that's not a knock on them, right? I appreciate people establishing businesses and doing coffee in the way that fits them, but there's not a whole lot of sacrifice. There's not a lot of effort. Coffee can just be purchased spot. They can take the copy and paste it on their website and call it direct trade. They can call it relationship coffee. They can call themselves independent, quote unquote. They can call themselves X, Y, Z. And again, not a knock, but it's just an observation from my end. It's like, I feel like the way we establish our business and the struggles that we went early on make what we do extremely authentic, in my opinion. And I feel like because of those stories, because of the ProBot, building a company out of scraps essentially is why people support Metric. The producers that we work with support Metric, the exporters, the importers, and I feel it. I feel like we're seen and I'm really appreciative of that today. So, mm. yeah. How has that scrappy mindset stayed as you've grown? So I knew you started with it. Y'all have grown significantly, gone from maybe one to two to four to however many customers. How has that scrappy mindset remained? And yeah, I just want to hear a little bit. So yeah, that's a great question. Today, I would say that by and large, what we always endeavor to achieve is to not spend money in areas where we don't need to spend money on. We're not trying to be the fanciest roaster in the block. We're just trying to really build a sustainable business. That is our goal. If we build a sustainable business, that means that we could stay in operation, buying copies and pay the producers a living income. Essentially, we can hire our staff and pay them wages that are allowing them to actually live and prosper, not just get by. You know, so I see a lot of benefit and good in having the scrappy mentality because then we're not just being frivolous with the money that we earn. We're actually being good stewards of it. And as we grow and as we earn more, we want to invest not just back to the producers that we're working with, but also to our staff and our community. And that is what we're doing today. That is by and large the reason why we were able to earn B Corp status uh, about six months ago. And that is something that outside of chasing deliciousness and chasing flavor, which is my obsession, is this other obsession to really taking care of people, making sure that whatever it's coming in the door, we're able to be generous. We're able to be looking at our staff and saying, where can we meet their needs? And vice versa, how do we encourage them to deliver their best? And happily today, we have about 20 staff members here, so we're not a large company, but everyone's super intentional. They're really driven. They're really hospitable. And they are metric. I would say by and large, metric is metric today because of them, not because of just Darko and I, but it's because of the staff that's serving the coffee, that's packing it, that's roasting it. They're a part of our chain. And I'm extremely proud of them and really happy that we have built this little dream of ours to include others that have their own opinions, their own dreams, their own ambitions. And I still can't believe that it's happening, but you know, we're here. Very cool, Xavier. Thank you for sharing all of that. Of course. Catch us in the next conversation with Xavier as we dive deeper into what Relationship Coffee means to Metric and its business partners at the farm. 
Also, let's show Metric some love by heading over to the website with the generous 20% off code COFFEEPOD. Grab yourself some delicious relationship-driven coffee. Discounts and links all in the episode notes. Thanks to Ryan Ingerson for his hard work on yet another background research for this conversation. For now, as always, and until next time, happy brewing. If you're wondering if I'm recording this audio with a baby attached to my chest, or maybe you weren't, but if you heard those little uh, strange breathing sounds, that's because I'm a new dad again, and uh, there was no better time to do this. Yeah, there she is. Thanks for listening. <laughs>